Definitely do have to point out how hilarious it is that we're doing a weather episode with how much we get distracted by the weather. Oh, yeah. Or like our usual start of every episode is, so how about this very segmented weather that we were having today? <laughs> it's very it's very all over the place. You can yeah, this is directly for everyone in southeast Wisconsin. Wow. Now we're going international with it <laughs> and dedicating a full hour and a half, most likely. Hey, this was a request, so we have an excuse. Gotta love the requests. Thank you for submitting. Love me some weather. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Gems of History podcast. I am your host, Jacob Shop, and joining me, as always, I have the immaculate Evan Roosh. Hey, your favorite weather man. <laughs> and the absolutely handsome mm. and vivacious Ooh. cody is back mm-hmm. cody marenthal is joining us once again hey yo and the best weatherman in this room right now in the room <laughs> wow i'm not gonna i'm not close to being a good weatherman so i think we need to have like a doppler radar off just to settle this that'll be our first entry on youtube just me and cody reading the weather like brick hamilton i mean that's all we're gonna do today so <laughs> <laughs> Read yeah. the weather and talk about death. We just know how much you guys love hearing us talk about the weather that's very local to just us and doesn't affect most of the other people that listen to this. So we're just going to talk about all of the weather today. Ranging from terrible hurricanes to earthquakes to a river flooding, you know, we kind of have it all. Yeah, we uh, actually had this was a request. We had a request on the Facebook group, which if you're not a part of the Facebook group, you should go join it. Mm-hmm. But we had a request in there for more weather-related topics. So, yeah, we decided that today we're just going to talk about some uh, historic natural disasters, you know. What if he was just pranking us? He's like, yeah, you guys should definitely do, like, a weather episode. Oh, yeah, and totally. We, and we were like, yeah. yeah. Wink, <laughs> wink. He, he, got, he got us. Yeah, he, well, here we are. We got got. Did hours of research for a joke. <laughs> but before we get started with that, how are you boys doing today? Uh, I'm living the dream, you know. Uh, it's Friday. Can't be too mad or sad about that. I uh, get to talk to you boys about some weather. Couldn't imagine a better Friday. There we go. Yeah, Friday recordings. So that, that checks means... all the boxes. Yes. Beers with the boys. Talk about the weather. <laughs> Friday. <laughs> it's like the subject, like, you can talk to any guy with randomly. It's like, yeah, the weather. Ah, oh, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> this wind. And then bring up how it's affecting your... Like mowing the lawn duties. Yep. Like how the weather, like, ah, it rained yesterday, so I still can't get out there and mow my lawn. My lawn's like five inches long right now. I can't get out there, though. Yeah, all this no, no, no mow may bullshit. <laughs> so unpredictable. What has a bee ever done for me? <laughs> Bev, how are you doing? Doing pretty great. Uh, the research for this episode uh, was pretty fun and just made me think of, you know, how we talked about the Aztecs and how they constantly, like, sacrificed people uh to the sun just my initial question for you guys like what piece of nature or thing of nature do you think got like the most prayers back in the day like do you think it's the sun or is it like a local river or do you think it was like the rain or the winds down in africa i would go with the sun the sun for sure sun yeah i mean i usually try to pick something different but yeah the sun no my Honestly, I might think like the local rivers, just like yeah. with the, how popular, just think of ancient cultures, the Nile River, like that bad boy caught a lot of prayers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
what else do you pray to back in the day? You're just like, well, this thing gives me life. So, <laughs> literally, just people on their hands and knees, like, thank you, water. And then the water said nothing because it's a water. <laughs> oh, that's what the water what said. <laughs> no one isolate that sound. <laughs> yeah, right. That sounded, that sounded like a uh, northeastern river. Right that was there. a bubbling brook. Yeah, <laughs> that accent that definitely gives me some southeast. <laughs> yeah, you know. That... Was that the Mississippi? Have you or? mastered the Northwestern River accent? Oh my goodness! But yeah, I'm actually really excited to talk about this one. I the ones that I researched, it's just like really crazy how Mother Nature just sometimes puts her hand up and says stop, and then we have to listen. She's kind of a, a fickle lady. She is. It's also very interesting. Like obviously, these different disasters cause a lot of loss of life and loss of land, but it's really just the aftermath of like people trying to recover from like loss of infrastructure that leads to almost more death oh yeah like more destruction other than like what actually happened so yeah really interested to dive into this one today all right well without further ado shall we get into i totally forgot that uh cody's been on this already i was just about to ask him like but wait what's your favorite part of tell history? us again <laughs> he's like god i love the weather insert, so much. i'll just insert the clip back <laughs> again <laughs> perfect so of course throughout history there's plenty of notable events And we've talked about some of those, but we haven't really covered anything that's not human-related. We've never really covered things that are Mother Nature-related. I mean, the Donner Party somewhat is, but not necessarily just weather-related or Mother Nature-related. So, as I said, this was a suggestion that we decided to go off of, and it's honestly a lot of really fascinating stuff. So hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know I learned a lot by doing research. A lot of stuff that I learned about, like sound waves and things that I wasn't expecting to learn about when I was researching weather, but here we are. <laughs> Again, going back to the ancient cultures, when uh, there's a natural disaster now, we know exactly why, like why it occurred. But back then, uh, it was, yeah, the river is mad at us. The sun is pissed, we did. We did something wrong here. Yeah. All right, who sinned? Who did it? So my first one that I was going to talk about is the explosion of Krakatoa. And it's not just a joke on an episode of Spongebob. It was an actual historic event that actually did quite a bit of damage. And as far as we know, is the loudest recorded sound in history. So, I mean, that's kind of crazy. And when I get into it later about like how loud it actually was, it's mind-blowing. I kid you not, when looking up, like, because uh, I did some research myself, being asked on, looked, tried looking up the sound, and the first video I clicked on, Ready for it, so pumped, and I got rickrolled. Yeah, so <laughs> oh, no that way. was awesome. Someone else posted, like on Reddit, posted a video that was supposed to be the Krakatoa explosion. I'm like, how the fuck do you have a recording? There's no way this is an actual recording of it. Right. It's from 1883. <laughs> like, <laughs> no way. What was the title of the YouTube video? Like, in all caps, you'll never believe Krakatoa lo- must hear <laughs> the hidden footage or hidden Some- sound. Something dumb. I should have known. <laughs> and then it's just rickroll. That's Come beautiful. here if you want to hear the loudest explosion ever. <laughs> so yeah, for those of you that don't know, uh, Krakatoa is a volcanic island between the Indonesian islands of Java and Sumatra, so it's officially part of Indonesia now. And it was believed to have been formed in the 5th or 6th century AD after a major eruption, so the eruption created the island from the leftover magma and all that good stuff. And then the other two nearby islands, and then there was a big undersea volcanic crater that's between all the islands, so that was formed as well. 
Krakatoa isn't just like one big volcano peak. It's actually three peaks, which I thought was interesting because I definitely was always thinking of it as just one. The three-headed monster, if you will. It's definitely a monster. <laughs> so, and all three of them are volcanic spouts. So all three of them could erupt at any moment, which is crazy. But it was dormant for a really long time. And then in 1680, it erupted, but it wasn't nearly as deadly or as much of a historic event as it was 200 years later. And that's why it's kind of known today, because it basically doesn't exist anymore. No. So early on the morning of August 26th, 1883, there began all these reports that there was an eruption that had started on Krakatoa, which at the time was known locally as Krakatoa. And throughout the course of the day, an eruption was pushing clouds of gas and debris around 15 miles into the air, which is crazy. And this is the small eruption. Yeah, it's just a little guy. So these explosions kept increasing in size and power throughout the day. And by the morning of August 27th, the next day was when things reached the fever pitch. So around 10 a.m., there was a gigantic blast from Krakatoa that shot ash nearly 50 miles into the air along with hot gases pushing their way across the water and over nearby islands at around 150 kilometers per hour. Jeez. So the Department of Earth Sciences professor Dave Rothery stated in an article to The Independent, quote, those who weren't killed by the intense heat would have been sandblasted to death. It was hot enough to carbonize everything in its path. We've talked about a lot of deaths on these here airwaves. I think sandblasted to death. That might be worse three that we've talked oh, about. Oh, yeah. it's got to be, gotta be top three worse. And it's just, it's 10 a.m. Like, I don't, I'm not even awake for my morning coffee by then, to be honest. Yeah. And yeah, I'm just getting sandblasted. Before lunch, of all things. Before yeah, lunch. You couldn't let me sit down with my sandwich at the beach and just. I had a killer egg Sammy, egg salad Sammy, just ready to rock and roll. I just imagine this as Terminator 2, the scene where she's behind the fence and just sees all the kids get turned into like skeletons. I'm like, that's what it probably looked like. Is there a movie about this event? And if not, should we make one? I have no idea if there is, but yes, we should make one. I don't one. know how we're going to mimic the uh, extreme gas <laughs> and the sandblasting effects. Who would be cast in this movie, and why would it be The Rock? Oh my <laughs> gosh, it would have to be The Rock. <laughs> the Rock punches the volcano yeah. wide open. That's we have like, to stop this eruption. He, he just punches both, a boulder into the both hole. Both hands over the top. So I got it. He sees the gas and just blows it away. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So, obviously, with this massive explosion, it pretty much tore the island apart. And estimates say that the ash pushed out by the eruption moved at close to twice the speed of sound. So that's how quickly this stuff was shooting out. But the ash really wasn't the deadly part. Getting carbonized wasn't the worst aspect of this, believe it or not. It did kill a good number of people, but the real killer was the huge tsunami that was caused by the explosion. Right. And when I say huge tsunami, this is Probably one of the biggest ones I've ever read about personally. I know there was a really bad one in uh, Thailand, I think, in like 2003 or whatever. But mm -hmm. yeah, this, is, this one's pretty crazy. So after around nine square miles of the island plunged into the water con and combined that with the explosive force and seismic activity, created waves of up to 120 feet high by most accounts. 
and those waves swept outward onto the nearby islands. And that wasn't the worst part because these waves, along their way to the islands, sometimes picked up large sections of coral reefs on their way inland and were estimated to have around 600 tons of force when making landfall. So obviously, tens of thousands were just immediately wiped out, along with over 150 coastal villages on the nearby islands of Java and Sumatra. And there were even reports that a steamship on the coast of Sumatra was picked up and deposited a mile inland, killing everyone on board. Just to give you a little bit of an idea of how strong this wave was. I don't know why when you when you started talking about that I it just I went to Forrest Gump where he was like <laughs> his ship was the only ship to survive. Right. <laughs> the talk of the town. But gosh, that's insane about the coral reefs literally picking them up and putting them somewhere else. Yeah, and imagine like being a person sharp, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say. Imagine being a person on land. And that's Nemo's house just, too. Yeah, you just have to see the water coming and not expect to just have thousands of shards of glass pretty much getting shot into your body right yeah if you survive the initial i don't know wave there's just a huge coral reef in your front yard <laughs> like what do you do then <laughs> bet a lot of people didn't even like realize it happened it just happened and oh yeah I, this had to be such an immediate death if you were mm-hmm. in like the immediate force of the wave because 600 tons of force that's literally just gonna crush you yeah you said two like Two times faster than the speed of sound. Well, that was the ash and stuff oh, getting shot ash, out. Okay. But yeah, like this wave had to have been moving. Like if it's 120 feet, that's got to be moving pretty quick. So yeah, and this is at again 10 a.m. Yeah, no one's even awake yet. Talk about having a bad start to the day. Would you rather have this happen right away in the morning or at night? Morning. Right away in the morning. Morning. I don't. You know, get it done I, with. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to work all day and then. Die oh yeah. <laughs> right away. I mean get home from a bad day at work, kick your feet up, and it's like, ah, this might as well happen. Yeah, <laughs> you crack open a beer. You just want to watch some Jeopardy and have some dinner, and there's just a huge tidal wave. <laughs> All right, honey, I guess this is it. Yep. Glad I spent the last day on Earth working. So one first-hand account that I found in that same independent article from my quote earlier claimed that there was a German quarry manager in the area at the time, and he was standing on the roof of his office block and got swept away by the wave into the jungle below. But when he was in the wave, he looked around and noticed that there was a crocodile being carried in the waves right next to him. Crocodile. So instead of freaking out, he decided to jump on the animal's back, and he was carried on top of this crocodile inside of the wave for around three kilometers, or about two miles, until he was let down unharmed on the rainforest floor. And I don't know if that's actually true, but it's a fun story. Like the kids say, uh, I think that's Cap. That is a little, that <laughs> might, might be Cap. Yeah. Like a, like a surfboard? He's on his back like a surfboard? Right, yeah. Yeah, this isn't like Finding Nemo. We're not riding the, the freaking like tunnels of water underneath the, the ocean for turtles and yeah. stuff. Yeah, I don't think like the Beach Boys are playing in the background <laughs> while he's just... Round, round, get around, yeah. I get around. <laughs> and he's just riding a crocodile. A crocodile, yeah. <laughs> No, yeah, what's your sources? Uh, myself. Yeah. Oh. oh, no one else was there. Huh. Convenient. Can we interview the crocodile? I don't know. So there are, other, there are other reports, though, which are confirmed, but they are just as wild as that one, just in a completely different sense. And this is where the sound aspect of this comes in, which I thought was the most fascinating part. So the sound from the eruption, as I mentioned earlier, is claimed to be one of the loudest sounds in recorded history. So the blast could be heard up to 3,000 miles 
or nearly 5,000 kilometers away, traveled around the world somewhere around five to eight times, and the force of the blast was reported to be some 10,000 times greater than the hydrogen bomb dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought the world was like ending. It was like, this is the time. We'll get to a guy later, but he thought it was like in his report that he wrote. And reports from areas over a thousand miles away quoted the sounds as being, quote, extraordinary sounds as of guns firing, or another quote, coming from the eastward like a distant roar of heavy guns. A thousand miles away. Yeah, That's and it's nuts. still loud enough to be like gunshots like nearby. That's crazy. I mean, nature one, humans zero. Like, we can't even replicate that with a hydrogen bomb. Like, yeah. The biggest hydrogen bomb. The Tsar Bomba is like a little baby bitch. Yeah, it's literally not even close to <laughs> how loud this is. a little was. burp. Have we thought about throwing the Tsar Bomba in a volcano? No. Mm. I don't think we should. Don't get them. Honestly, that's, probably, that's probably why the rock had to go save them. <laughs> <laughs> the Russians are planning to nuke the Krakatoa. He, he, don't, he would catch the bomb. He, oh, he, would, he throws it back to Russia. Right, yeah. He throws it back and then like gives a jersey to a kid. That's right. They're like Mean Joe Green. Yeah. So for a reference point, this would be the equivalent to a sound occurring in Dublin, Ireland, and being heard in Boston, Massachusetts. That's about how far away the distance would be to still hear it like a gunshot. And not only that, but it would be heard, the sound, if you were in Boston, would be heard around four hours after the initial sound occurred. So I saw something interesting that kind of put this into perspective for me, where it said if this happened in modern times, and say if Krakatoa exploded specifically, if you were in Australia, you would be able to see the news stories about it for hours. And then randomly, like three hours after you initially started seeing these reports, you would hear the sound. What the? Yeah, was that? <laughs> so you could, you could like track the progress in modern time and then hear the effect of it, which is crazy. Wow. So the sound, this is where I'm going to get into a little bit of sound science. So hopefully this doesn't get too boring. I'm going to try and make this as quick as I can and under, understandable because I just think this is crazy. But the sound is registered to be around 172 decibels measured 100 miles or 160 kilometers away. So to explain how loud that sound is, there's here I'm going to give you a few examples of other loud sounds. According to an article from a website called Nautilus, and it's N-A-U-T-I-L dot U-S if you want to find this article. But a human operating a jackhammer registers around 100 decibels. And standing next to a jet engine would be around 150 decibels. So the way decibels work is kind of weird. So for each 10 decibel increase, that's about twice as loud. So this would mean that the explosion of Krakatoa was over four times as loud as standing next to a jet engine. And that sound was that decibel reading was 100 miles away from the actual eruption. Oh, man. So... Just imagine how loud that would be. Yeah, like being on the actual island or just being within the 100 miles. Yeah, it's crazy. Either are dead or deaf, pretty much. Yep. So going off of that point, a ship 40 miles away at the time, so less than half of the distance away from that 172 decibel reading, had reports from the captain that, quote, so violent are the explosions that the eardrums of over half my crew have been shattered. 
My last thoughts are with my dear wife. I am convinced that the day of judgment has come. Wow. He, like, this was so intense that he thought this was just judgment day. Yeah. Like, that's, that is insane. Yeah, it's crazy. And the only reason more of his crew didn't have their eardrums shattered is because they were underneath the deck. So the people that were on top on the main deck were the ones that got the most hearing damage. And that's not surprising because the human threshold for pain is around 130 decibels. So it's fair to say that a sound that's 172 decibels at 100 miles away is going to be much louder at less than half of the distance. But to truly explain how loud this was, 172 decibels is just 22 decibels shy of what the limit of what we perceive as sound is. So this thing almost literally was louder than sound. And like it happened literally in an instant, yeah. too. So you're just washing the deck, you scurvy dog, and then... Poof, and you can't gone. hear anymore. And you're in intense pain. The so, shock alone would have been... Oh my insane. Goodness. And then a tidal wave is like right there, but you can't hear it. Yep. You're just like, do-do-do-do-do, and then yeah. someone's yelling at you in the background. Like in the movie, someone's in the background like, right. Jerry! <laughs> Jerry, there's a wave! <laughs> you're just like yeah. singing along to the latest ditty that just came out. Because you just apparently aren't in pain that your eardrums are just shattered. <laughs> <laughs> so the way sound works is that obviously we create vibrations in the air and that fluctuates the air molecules. And so when these fluctuations are large enough, the low pressure end of the wave will hit zero pressure and basically create a vacuum. And that means that instead of vibrating the air in front of it, the sound will actually push the air in front of it with it, creating a shock wave. Mm -hmm. So that'll literally just be a force of air. And so that happens at 194 decibels. So that just gives you an idea of how close this thing was to literally just creating an air wave that would have destroyed more things. Nature is so scary. It's insane. You're 100% with the sound being the most interesting thing about this. It's, because it's, it's crazy. N- like, most likely never been replicated. No, not even close. Like I said, the Tsar Bomba is, like, multiple times less than this. Did you see any any points on, like, why this was so, like, compared to other... That is what I'm just about to get into, actually. Well, hot dog. Look at us. So, in all, the estimated death toll from the explosion of Krakatoa was around 36,000 from the explosion, the tsunami, and everything else to go along with that. The six cubic miles of rock, ash, and dust resulting from the explosion pushed into the atmosphere. And not only did this result in darkened skies, but it also dropped the average temperature of the planet by a couple degrees for multiple years. Years. That is nuts. I think it was something around like 2.2 degrees on average. It dropped for around five to seven years, which isn't just one event did that. Yeah. So immediately after the eruption, however, the particles shifted the incoming sunlight to create beautiful and really vivid sunsets. And this is one of this is one of the cooler parts of this. So shades of green, blue, gold, purple, and orange were reported to have been seen. And it even influenced the background of the sky of the famous painting known as The Scream. So, you know, the guy yeah. holding his face and screaming, the background sky in that was influenced by the sunsets. So it did have a little... A little it had a cultural impact as well. Wow. A little good thing. Yeah. So the main, re- <laughs> the main reason why they say that this was the loudest, as loud as it was, is basically because 
So as I said, there's three ports to this volcano. And what they thought is that the initial eruption clogged one of them with debris. So there's already pressure building in there. And then some sort of external failure on the volcanic island itself allowed atmospheric elements into the volcano where it shouldn't have been. And it created more pressure inside. And eventually that pressure just literally built to a fever pitch and exploded outward. And that's why it was such a violent eruption. And that combined with seawater mixing in, creating steam, it just all worked together to create the biggest catastrophic eruption in the history of the world. And it's like, it's unpredictable. It's like a volcanic eruption, like hurricanes and tornadoes, like they can kind of be covered at least modern times, but like, uh, Volcano eruption now is even hard to predict, but back then, not at all. No way to know, yeah. Yeah, like the technology is just so far advanced now in every single aspect of life that, I mean, this happened and people just immediately lost hearing and then 600 tons of coral hit them. Yeah, and it a lot of the ge- geologists that like study this say this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Like yeah. The situation had to be perfect for it to be this violent. So, I mean, like I, that's why it's historic is because it's not really replicable right. without something to line up perfectly like that. Mm-hmm. So just to finish up on Krakatoa, after the explosion, the Royal Society in the UK formed a committee to collect reports and compile a full recounting of events. And that's kind of why we know the most stuff about it right now. And since international communication was now much more possible in 1883, they had laid telegraph wires and stuff so we could communicate with Morse code across countries and stuff like that. It became one of the first major global events, global news events. And this, that's kind of what helped us compile these records. And now, August 27th, 1883 is referred to as the day the world exploded. Quite literally from like the depths of the earth the loudest noise possible that reverberated around the earth yeah because they said it reverberated around the earth three to four times in both directions so technically it would have rounded and then come back so it was like seven to eight times pretty much crazy absolutely nuts nature is scary and that came from the ocean as well so the ocean also still scary oh yeah scariest place terrifying (laughs) oh man if only the rock was there (laughs) if only Who's gonna Who's gonna write it? Yeah, Michael Bay. <laughs> <laughs> he is good at explosions. Yeah, yeah. He'll, he will murder those. Explosions then the Transformers, sure. some reason, show up. Optimus Prime, it's Dwayne and the Transformers. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! All right, so we just had to take a quick pause. We have uh, a little guy in the peanut gallery now. He's not a little guy, actually. He's a pretty big guy. His name's Austin Keeson. He's been um, on the pod before, so he's just gonna hang out. And if you hear a laugh in the background, that's him. Yeah, Austin, Austin, say hello. All right, and that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> we'll cut that out. But uh, my natural disaster that I have for all y'all is a little bit different. It's not as dramatic, I guess I would say, as the Krakatoa explosion. I wasn't expecting it to be as dramatic as it was, but here we are. Here we are. But it's a extreme natural disaster uh, that happened in China and affected... Some estimates are close to that it killed 3.7 million people. I, I would say that's a bit dramatic. Yeah. But it's just not now as loud, I guess. Yeah. It's more of like a silent killer, you know? It was just yeah. like a, a slight, slight cool-edged killer. Krakatoa just had to be extra. Flashy. Very extra. Very flashy. Diva. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, what I'm talking about and my disaster is called the flooding of the Yangtze River in China. And yes, I did pronounce that right. I Googled it. Don't come at me. Yep. <laughs> Can't wait for our Facebook group to be like, well, actually, it's the Yangtze. Well, actually. <laughs> but uh, first off, before I dive into the actual event itself, did want to cover just you know how a flood truly occurs because you may just think, yeah, a lot of rain happens, water goes up, bada bing, bada boom, millions die. But there is more of a more like scientific process, if you will. So the majority of river floods are actually relevant to the quantity and distribution of rainfall within the certain drainage basin, which includes like the speed. So you're talking about the slopes. So if the riverbed is at the very bottom of, let's say, like mountain slopes, all that rain is pouring down extremely fast, extremely powerful as well, causing the water to rush forward. And with the Yangtze River, it's literally surrounded by mountains and hills the entire way. Because this is a very, I guess you can say, old river. It was formed, scientists say, roughly 45 million years ago. So it's been an extremely old river that's just been going deeper and deeper into the Earth's surface and getting surrounded by these huge slopes that just pour rain into it. Well, not to mention that most mountains have snow on the tops of them. So when that melts, too, that's just added to it. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Um, But in addition uh, to what I just mentioned, uh, the amount of water that's already absorbed by, let's say, like a drainage system uh, by the local people does play an important role in the probability of the flooding, uh, but in the case of the Yangtze River, uh, and this happened in 1931, um, they did not do a great job, as Apparently you, as you not. can imagine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Before you go on, one thing I did, didn't did put in my notes from Krakatoa, too, was like the atmospheric conditions changed so much that in California they recorded record rainfalls after it happened that still haven't been surpassed to this day. Oh my gosh. So that's how much it affected everything. Was yeah. just crazy. But anyways, go on. But uh, just to wrap up the aspects or like the concept of flooding. So naturally when a enormous amount of rain happens in this type of basin, this river basin, the soil cannot hold the moisture and that's what actually causes the flooding. That, that's what causes the river water to basically go over the river bank, the river soil. And once it just goes over a little bit, all reports say that like just a little tip over of the water over the river basin causes the entire thing to start going. It makes sense. Soil can only hold so much moisture. So once mm-hmm. it hits that limit, nowhere else to go. <laughs> Can't ask a lot of uh, th- these little dirt particles. Nope. No. <laughs> Uh, And like I mentioned, in mountainous regions such as the Yangtze River Basin, floods are extremely common during the early spring and, of course, like Jacob mentioned, the midwinter thaws. And at the most basic level, uh, the 1931 Yangtze flood can be explained by the combination of excessive snow melting and an unpredictable amount of rain. So you may be thinking, well, if people naturally are probably living by this river since the dawn of civilization, because that's just how civilizations work. This year in particular, they saw immense amounts of snow. And in the spring, they got just an insane amount of rain. Like, you know how we love to talk about the weather? We got a decent amount of rain today. Again, very specific to southeastern Wisconsin. But they got 
monsoons. And it also doesn't help that the Yangtze River, or in other terminology, the Changjing River, uh, A, it's the longest river throughout the entire continent of Asia. It's the third longest in the world, and it's roughly 3,900 miles. But they're literally, this river is in between two different monsoon systems. So the southeast, I believe it's, excuse me, let me take a is quick look. Is it El Nino, which is Spanish <laughs> for El Nino? Nino. <laughs> but, uh, I, sorry, I do apologize. I don't have the exact name of the monsoon system. So I guess Cody wins the best weather man that oh, we were talking I guess about. So. Yeah, I, I know it, but I'm just not going to say it. Yeah, he's so got he it in the know. back, in the vault. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they're in between. Oh, this river is between two different uh, monsoon systems, which again, just we're talking about an unbelievable amount of rain and just unpredictable weather too. So, oh my gosh, absolutely! Like we mentioned, Forrest Gump before how Vietnam when they were in Vietnam, how it constantly rained, pretty much what they were going through this entire year. And keep in mind, the actual flooding started in August, so through spring and summer. Again, just remember, they were getting nuts amount of rain. I think we're legally obligated to make some portion of our listener base uncomfortable by saying it was quite moist. Mm, love that word. Tad bit moist, yeah. Mm, feeling moist right now. But again, uh, long before humans actually inhabited this river basin, the region was constantly experiencing flooding just by, again, those being in between the two different uh, monsoon systems and just being a mountain basin. Uh, and a lot of this basin has large depressions set in these mountain valleys, which creates bottlenecks in the different flows of the river. And as a result of this, water accumulates very easily in these specific areas and is very slow to discharge. So it's basically a natural dam. And once this dam breaks, if you will, oh, excuse my language for saying dam, uh, you get a lot of river a lot of river, a lot of water coming very fast and at an incredible force. America right now also has a lot of large depressions going on, and there's also a lot of waterworks like involved. Like my brain, in, a wow. A lot of waterworks <laughs> involved in that. Yes. Not many bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully you're all doing well out there. <laughs> but uh, just a quick note that I thought was very interesting. Some of the most important cities that are along this riverbank are Shanghai, Luzhou, Zhongqing, and, which I thought was the most interesting part, a little city known as Wuhan. Okay. Which, if you uh, remember from... Yeah, Business good, Street, nature got him. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But that is part of, like, why, I mean, Wuhan was extremely under, or is an extremely underdeveloped city, and this bad boy of a flood kind of set them back even more. Oh, yeah. But, like I mentioned, you know, over, the, over time, over kind of thousands of years, management of this actual river basin, you know, how they actually dam the river, build up the banks on the human side of things, changed quite a bit. And rather than working with or around the region's natural flood patterns, settlers began to modify their agriculture and their settlements, uh, actually interfering with the natural flow of the water. And this is pretty historic, but. By 2500 BC, rice farmers began planting rice on bonded terraces known as paddy fields, essentially creating artificial wetlands. So they were making, they were, the way that rice works is you have to flood 
all of the i love rice talk with evan this is my favorite part <laughs> we need you need to put in some like inspirational music like <laughs> da, 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 something like that rice talk with evan but this creates like major wetlands and rice paddies along this river supported the diets of the entire chinese pop- population and rice farming allows these farmers to these settlers to farm in this area and involves a great investment and generates additional flood risk because again they literally have to flood the fields and make natural pathways for an intense amount of water to get to these different fields and during the era of flood recession agriculture farmers would swiftly pack up their belongings and flee if their home was at risk of flooding modern rice farmers who modify their landscape risk lose serious investments of time and money if they were to abandon floods during their home. So to kind of wrap that point up, in the early days, people would actually leave their homes because they had the option because there weren't as many people. Like in 2500 BC, there were seven people in Asia being dramatic, but you could move and just go somewhere else for this flooding season. 1931 China, completely different. There's a lot of people. (laughs) There's a lot of people. And there's really nowhere else to go because you can't just, I mean, all the land's taken. Yeah. Uh, at this point in 1931, now getting to the actual events of the flood, one third of China's population was in this river basin. So like 20 people. Yeah. They <laughs> came 20 more people. Exactly 13 more people as previously reported. Uh, and as a result... The forests and the different wetlands, which typically act as natural barriers to floods, were destroyed. So, and land close to the river was very overused, again, with the establishment of rice paddies, which need to be flooded. And since this was one of the most populated areas of the entire world, people took advantage of the river's water excess and created more settlements and more agricultural fields. Those, again, just additional rice paddies. And the river's natural functions, the flow of it, were exploited via installing these different dams and dredging and then, of course, dumping pollutants in the river uh, so it could just be shipped downriver to someone else's problem. Gotta love human intervention. One time, it's not America. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) We're spreading our our, our jokes internationally. (laughs) Oh, man. But this, the Yangtze River floods are considered to be one of the most extensive and damaging natural disasters of the 20th century. And as many as 50 million people were indirectly affected by the floods. So I mentioned that or excuse me, 3.7 million people died because of this flood. The actual flooding itself affected 50 million people. That's insane. 50 million people, a third of China's population. And temperatures, just kind of like to set up you know, why, this were, why this was happening, again, temperatures during the winter of 1930 were extremely cold, which caused an immense deposit of snow on all these different mountaintops. And when temperatures rose in the spring, obviously snow melts for all of you. you know, <laughs> just people that just know how the world works. All that river came rushing down. And then in addition... It rained like crazy during this time. Some reports being said that uh, seven devastating storms swept down the valley rapidly, throughout, especially throughout the month of July. So again, the major flooding took place in August. And a quote here, 
As much rain fell in one month that would be expected in a year and a half. Holy crap. So, for whatever reason, it was raining. To quote Family Guy, I believe it's like... It's Ollie raining the sideways. It's going to rain. <laughs> <laughs> it's raining sideways. It's raining, man. Well done. It is raining, man. And, oh my gosh, just intense amount of rain. And it, along with the massive amount of death and the amount, massive amount of people that were affected by this rain, the floods actually inundated 180,000 square kilometers of land, which is an area equal to the size of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut combined. That's a lot. So that's all standing water, if not, you know, drowning water. And the flood area extended as far south to Gudong and as far north as Manchuria. So a completely different country than China. Uh, Eight out of China's 23 provinces were severely affected, which included the Yellow River and the Grand Canal, because once uh, this overflowing of this, the Yangtze River, happened, it did actually affect other rivers, and again, the Grand Canal, which led to more flooding. And then as flood waves just swept across the different landscapes, hundreds of thousands of people died from drowning, as you can imagine. You know, I'm just going to say it. It's a lot of water. Intense amount of water. It's a lot of water. <laughs> I wonder if anyone like scoops them up. Just like, let's save this for later, just in case. California might need this in 70 years. <laughs> right. When California has their 17th wildfire of the, of the year, we can just throw some of it yeah. over there. Why couldn't we just have some of this water come to the south of the United States at this time, and then we wouldn't have the Dust Bowl? Unbelievable. Dang. China well, just didn't share their can't, water. can't share the water? Come on. <laughs> Uh, the force of these floods obviously affected the dikes or the dams. <laughs> In Pride Month, no less. How dare you? <laughs> it's a funny word. <laughs> the dikes that surrounded the industrious city of Wuhan actually collapsed, causing the water that was being held back by these dams uh, to pour into the city at alarming speeds. The force of the floods tore down buildings and concrete structures which added to the number of casualties. So this water that was coming down was so intense that it was just destroying cement and concrete buildings. Jeez. And on August 19th, 1931, water levels exceeded 16 meters, which for us dum-dums like in the United States deep, is, man. thank you very much, it's 50 feet of water and drowned 200,000 people just on that day. Holy cow. The immediate effects of these floods transformed the plain of the Yangtze River Basin into an area resembling essentially Lake Michigan. There was literally nothing but water as far as the eye could see. Streets were then turned into canals, and people were forced to squeeze. Streets were turned into canals, and people were forced to squeeze onto any dry land available. Fishermen began taxiing local Wuhan refugees to safety for a very expensive price because good old supply and demand, baby. It's paying the guy that takes you down the river sticks at the, the gold much. coin or whatever you yeah. got to pay him. Yeah, save me. I'll pay you next week. Yeah. <laughs> you got Venmo? Yeah, Venmo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, those that couldn't afford the fare uh, used whatever buoyant debris that they could 
hop onto, maybe even a door like the Titanic. Uh, and even some reports since the flooding actually caused a lot of the graveyards to become undone, that people were swimming down rivers in these different huge areas of water in coffins. Oh, okay. And the floods caused entire cities to lose power, making care of people that were injured during these floods basically impossible. And because the streets were so deeply filled with water, policing was proved to become extremely difficult. One morning, a large cargo vessel carrying debris sailed sailed into the Texaco oil depository, causing a huge fire that was too hot for the brigade to approach. So that's, literally, that's it, good. <laughs> it was so wet that a fire started. That is crazy. And these fires lasted for three days and provided the only source of light during the night for refugees. And then to just wrap up on the, on, on the river flooding, there's just a quote that I found very harrowing, very interesting, I guess. Words can hardly depict the feelings of oppression and poignant agony which filled me when I witnessed with my own eyes the scenes of death and desolation, of the excruciating sufferings of the injured and famished, and of those living torn asunder from their friends and relatives. So absolutely nuts. I'm going to say it, not fun. Not fun. No, I don't think it'd be a good time. Whenever a river floods, not great. No. You know, I like going in the water. You know, I like going to the dells, going to the water parks, but... Going to the uh, Great Wolf Lodge and getting that huge bucket of water dumped on me. Always a fun time. I don't think this is that, though. I don't think this is that fun. Where would, like, the bodies... um, Oh, those bad boys just floated forever. Uh, Hopefully they were at least wearing swimsuits. Oh, I mean, can't be just, like, exposed out there. It's beach day every day. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually a very nude beach out there, yeah. (laughs) Probably, honestly. (laughs) Now, where do you pick up after something like that? Yeah, I mean... Everyone get, a, everyone get a bucket. <laughs> Start putting it in the water somewhere else. Yep. <laughs> Carrying it hundreds of miles back to a different part of the ocean. All right, so I got one more, and then Evan and I are going to kind of combine on the last one and talk about it. But the next one that I want to talk about is the Port Royal earthquake of 1692. And for those of you that don't know, Port Royal was a big pirate den back in the day during the golden age of piracy. And if you want to learn more about piracy, we did a short episode on it back in the day that kind of covers some of the stuff about piracy. And then one of the most famous pirates in the Asian part of the piracy world. So Shout out China. Twice, twice in one episode. So Port Royal is a village located near Kingston in Jamaica, and it's now known as a small fishing village. But it used to be home to a lot more interesting guests. Port Royal was taken by the English in 1655, and then they set it up to be a trade center for England. However, as Port Royal became more settled, more colonized, it became a den of sin and debauchery. Because My as, favorite. <laughs> as I mentioned, this is the golden age of piracy, after all. So many buildings were converted into taverns, brothels, gambling dens. Pirates would come in and out of here, spending the thousands that they would plunder and treasure. And eventually, the town needed to expand, so it expanded itself out into the water to help accommodate this quick growth that they were seeing. But this meant that they had to take a town that was already built on a shaky foundation and make it even more of a ticking time bomb for a disaster to happen. So eventually, Port Royal had no more room to build outward and began to build up 
and houses of wood were being exchanged for brick, and one-story buildings were converted into multi-level structures, which is all well and good, hmm. aside from the intense level of heathens and rapscallions coming to and from town. <laughs> but it was all good until June 7th, 1692. Well, yeah, because they were making buildings bigger and taller, making these heathens and rapscallions closer to God. I mean, they should have seen it coming. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> have they thought about that one? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, I think they were thinking that they deserve what's going to come to them. <laughs> they were, they were thinking, yeah, when this, when this event happened, they were like, yeah, we get it. We've been pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, God kind of just, yeah, yeah. It's my time. So Jamaica on its own is already known for having relatively frequent earthquakes, but around 11.43 a.m. on June 7, 1692, a major earthquake struck Port Royal. A man named Reverend Emmanuel Heath was said to have been smoking and drinking with the governor of Jamaica around this time when he found, quote, the ground rowling and moving under my feet. So John White, who was the governor... Shut up. No way. Yep. <laughs> John, get, get out of John here. White. Yep. No way. So he he didn't abandon his family, but he calmly said that this earthquake would be over soon. But this man, as the other John White in our first episode, was very wrong. So these tremors got more powerful, and the nearby church collapsed. All the houses began to crack and fall down, and it was said that the earth began to open up, and on the harbor side of the town, whole streets sank into the water. So multiple forts on the island were destroyed or sank. Plantations were leveled, and even a 1,000-acre sec- section of woodland on the north side of Jamaica sunk into the sea. Oh my god, that's a huge amount of land. I know, it's crazy. In Port Royal proper, more than half of the town's 53 acres sank into the harbor and was quickly covered by 20 to 30 feet of water because the sea receded and then came back and just destroyed everything. And the 25 acres that did survive were very badly damaged. So it was said that some houses were partially submerged, others were piles of bricks, and most that stood standing were on very loose foundations, so people wouldn't even go in them for fear that they would just fall apart while they're inside. Mm-hmm. In the initial earthquake, just the initial three minutes that was estimated for this earthquake to take place, roughly one-third of Port Royal's population of 6,000 people died in three minutes. Some were crushed by falling houses. Others simply drowned. But the most terrifying of all were the people who were stuck in the ground. Oh, my God. Because, you see, when the sandy soil that the town was on became supersaturated and pressed down by the waves that swept into town after the earthquake, it went through the process known as liquefaction. So basically, this means that the sand particles were pushed apart and separated to create a sludgy, almost quicksand-like ground. This is the first time in actual history where quicksand became a factor. This is why the cartoons (laughs) warn us. Because of this earthquake, yeah. So this liquefied ground can't support buildings, obviously, and it can't support people. So it literally sucks them straight down. But... When this earthquake subsided and the sand got back together, this quicksand solidified again. So some of the people in this process did just sink all the way down and died underneath all of the sand, but others were stuck halfway in 
and this meant that they were literally partially submerged and unable to expand their lungs to breathe and slowly suffocated to death. And it was even said in a report from Emmanuel Heath, the reverend I mentioned earlier, that some who were exposed had their heads eaten by dogs. Ooh, don't love, don't love that. Especially when I have a, you know, a little puppy upstairs. It's all those wild dogs out there, man. For more information about dogs, go listen to our <laughs> previous <laughs> <Right>. episode. <laughs> but can you imagine that? Just the earth literally sucking you in and then solidifying again immediately and you just can't breathe. At this point in history, too, it's like you have to just think this is God punishing me. And that's what most people did think. Like, that's so, that's such a crappy way to go out. Yeah. And that just happened, like, the earth is swallowing it you. Just, it's the perfect place for this to happen because it's such, as I mentioned earlier, a den of sin and debauchery. Yeah. That everyone who's looking at this from outside being such a Christian society mm. is like, well, you got what you deserved. Told ya. Play stupid games, win stupid prizes. <laughs> exactly. So estimate from scientists today speculate that this earthquake may have been around a magnitude 8 earthquake, which Ooh. are categorized as catastrophic oh my and deadly. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> it's not, not a good one. Eight's pretty high. Yeah. yeah. So in the aftermath of the earthquake, some took advantage of the chaos when about looting. And in the words of Emmanuel Heath, quote, As soon as night came on, a company of lewd rogues who called themselves privateers fell to breaking open warehouses and houses deserted to rob and wriggle their neighbors while the earth trembled under them, and some of the houses fell upon them in the act, and those audacious whores that remain still upon the place are as impudent and drunken as ever. Oh my God. <laughs> he just had to throw one out for the ladies, too, there. Uh. <laughs> it's so funny reading it, because I found a firsthand, like, his report of this. Mm-hmm. There's literally entire paragraphs that are just run on sentences the whole time. Where, where do you stop? But it was also reported that accompanying those who died in the initial earthquake were, as Evans sort of mentioned in the Yangtze River flood, the dead bodies of those buried in the town cemetery who had been unearthed by the great disaster. So you're literally trying to swim to safety next to a bunch of dead people. Oh, God. In the following weeks, many more died of injuries and disease, and in total, the casualties numbered around 5,000. And as I mentioned earlier, the entire population of the town was around 6,000 to 6,500 people. So you're losing Not like a lot of people. 80% of the population, pretty much, of this Ooh. town. And the major flaws that led to this disaster obviously could have been avoided, but the expansion of the town was more important at the time. And the expanded areas of the city that fell into the water were barely on any solid foundation at all, which was mostly wood and sand that they brought out to expand. And houses built higher meant that they had a less stable base, especially with the sandy nature of the foundation of the soil, because previous inhabitants of the island before the English took over actually staked their one-story homes deep into the earth to prevent such an event like this from happening, because mm. their houses would still be on a stable enough foundation, even if there was an earthquake. They had some foresight. The reactions to the event were pretty varied. Uh, some people did acknowledge the failure of building on the shaky foundation, while others, obviously, as we mentioned, act- viewed this as an act of divine judgment for the wicked city of Port Royal. And especially back in England, the response went to that kind of divine judgment angle because in England proper, they don't really have many earthquakes there. So for Port Royal, who has common earthquakes, they saw this big earthquake as this major catastrophic event 
because they don't know what it's like to live in a place that has major earthquakes. So any earthquake at all is already a catastrophic event. Yeah, they never experienced mm-hmm. the ground underneath them just shaking like crazy. Yeah, <laughs> so it, even small earthquakes, the people would say that it was some sort of judgment from God or warning from God because they just didn't have them. So where Jamaica sits is pretty much a perfect spot for regular earthquakes because it's along a fault line underneath the water. But regardless of that, the earthquake of 1692 damaged Port Royal in a way that it would never recover from. And its status as a haven for all manner of thieves and pirates diminished very quickly. And most of the trade that ran through here moved to nearby Kingston, which was just a little bit north of where Port Royal was situated. And as I mentioned at the beginning, Port Royal now sits as a small fishing village, and it is a recognized heritage site for archaeologists to explore. And that's where we get the time of the earthquake, because one of the archaeologists scuba dove down and found a pocket watch that had stopped at 1143. Wow. That is the coolest thing of all time. That guy is the coolest of all time. Yeah, honestly. He found it in, like, mid-1900s, yeah. What an unbelievable find. That's the coolest part to me about these stories is that we can still find stuff like now that helps us get more details on it. Do you think there's buried treasure there? Just like sunken underneath something? Maybe. I looked at pictures of the underwater sites. It's pretty cool. But yeah, Yeah. you could still, I think you can still go there if you get like permission to. So yeah, it's cool. It's a crazy story though. Promote the town mayor and also God because you (laughs) don't want to be. Exactly. (laughs) And the pirates. Yeah. 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 Oh, you know there's some skeletons actively guarding some treasure oh yeah they have ruins. to be yeah I, the main reason i wanted to cover that is because of the liquefaction part where just people literally got sucked into the earth that sucks just how do you not view that as god just being like you're done <laughs> oh sorry i'll say it again yeah yeah that sucks <laughs> <laughs> all right so we got That's one more one we're uh gonna cover this one together evan and i both did notes on this one but it's uh, the Galveston Storm of 1900, which is considered the U.S.'s most deadly natural disaster still to this day. So mm-hmm. it's a very crazy story, and it's, it's very upsetting because it shouldn't have been this bad. So A truly insane storm. Like you, of course, in recent memory, you naturally probably think of like Hurricane Katrina. This bad boy was a lot worse, just in terms of obviously we'll talk about like the death toll, but also just the actual stats of like the winds, like the miles per hour of the winds, the gusts per hour, just absolutely insane storm. Yeah, and Hurricane Katrina was really bad, but the oh, yeah. reason that it wasn't worse is because we have measures now put in place for avoiding the death tolls by evacuating people way ahead of time and boarding houses, stuff like getting everything ready. But yeah, they didn't have that at the turn of the 20th century, because at the turn of the 20th century, Galveston was a thriving metropolis of a city. It was an island floating just off the southeastern coast of Texas, for those of you that don't know where Galveston is. It was where the wealthier people in the area were moving now, and the buildings and businesses were being erected to signify the growth of what was now the largest city in Texas, which is kind of crazy that it was an island and it was the biggest city in what is a massive state in the U.S. But shipping ports were bustling. Population of 37,000 was inflated each summer with vacationers who were coming to enjoy the beach. But in 1900, no one was really ready for what dangers were coming. No, not one bit. Like you mentioned, like this is an island just off the coast. And whenever these types of storms happen, the islands are affected the most. Like we mentioned in Krakatoa. 
So not great times for these people. So obviously at the time, hurricane forecasting was still quite primitive. It was 1900 after all. There were good ideas of when storms would be coming because we had communication between countries in the path of the storm that could allow for warnings to be issued in areas that were thought to be on track to be hit by these storms. But for Galveston, at the time, all of these measures would prove to be useless for a number of reasons. First of all, the U.S. Weather Bureau was being stubborn about international communications with Cuba because it was said that they were jealous of Cuba for how well they were predicting weather, and the U.S. wanted to do it themselves, apparently. So they just basically, out of ignorance, didn't listen to the Cuban transmission that there was a large storm headed straight towards the coast. They were like, guys, for real, we're not joking. There's a big one coming. And America was like, we didn't hear it from us, so sorry. Fake news. And this is before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Wow. Well, and everyone in Galveston thought that they were in such a good spot. They thought that this was the best city in Texas. It's the, the crown jewel, so nothing could hit us, nothing could hurt us. We're in the best spot ever. And you mentioned it's all rich people were moving there, yep. right? So it's like, oh, we're too rich for waves to hit us. Exactly. Can we pay the waves off to go somewhere else? (laughs) So coupled with that arrogance was the fact that the U.S. Weather Bureau had already issued a warning that the storm was going to pass over Florida and proceed up the East Coast, meaning that it wouldn't affect Galveston or Texas at all. But by the time the Weather Bureau's chief observer in Galveston, whose name was Isaac Klein, noticed that the storm was actually heading straight for the island, it was far too late. And he attempted to warn the city, but there wasn't nearly enough time to evacuate or prepare anything, really, to get these people to safety. So the hurricane occurred before our modern hurricane scale system was around, but it's estimated to have been a Category 4. And for those of you that don't know the categories very well, Category 4 is... Anything over Category 3 is considered catastrophic. And... For Category 4, it has to have sustained winds anywhere from 130 to 156 miles an hour. So, not good. Yeah, and this one in particular had gusts of... So, my source was pretty funny with how they said it. So, before the anometer... Anemometer, my gosh. (laughs) It's a weird word. (laughs) before, Before it literally blew away in the storm, it hit 84 miles per hour. Yeah, the thing that tracks weather speed blew away. (laughs) Which means uh, most estimates have the gusts over 100 miles per hour. Yeah. It is absolutely insane. And I saw that later meteorologists estimated it was around 140. So that's why they gave it the Category 4. So the storm surge swept waves estimated to be almost 16 feet tall over the short breaker wall that they had outside of the city and into the island itself. And for reference, the highest point in Galveston at the time of the storm was less than nine feet above sea level. Literally double. Yeah, so you're sitting right at the point of the sea, basically, and you're expecting to not have damage from a Category 4 hurricane. So only way you're not getting hit by this bad boy is if you stand in Austin Keys and shoulders. <laughs> or if the rock stops it. Or, yeah. yeah, or if the rock comes and Where punches is, the wave yeah, somewhere else. We need him at all of these disaster sites. Mm, where was Jason Momoa? Yeah, why was he not controlling the water here? As Aquaman, he has one job, to make a shit movie and to control these storms. <laughs> Everybody needs a day off. <laughs> So the storm made landfall on September 8th and immediately began to wreak havoc 
buildings were collapsing, some, be- some of these buildings being picked up and thrown at other buildings. People began to seek shelter in other buildings that were okay, <laughs> and they were hit by the debris that was flying around. And it was said that some of these people were even decapitated by flying slate roof tiles, which isn't a fun day. But it's pretty immediate, I guess. So. We talked about like how you don't want to die on this podcast. That has to be up there. Just a roof I mean, tile, it, just like if it's just cutting your head off, it's not gonna hurt. I mean, but getting up to heaven and you know St. Peter's, like, so how do you go? It's like man, roof, I don't a mean, roof it's, tile. It's better than being crushed between two houses <laughs> or sandblasted. <laughs> you know what? Too? I don't even really know. It just happened and. Yeah, yeah honestly, you probably don't even see it. You don't know what happened. You're just done. And then St. Peter's like, wow, I was uh, well, crucified upside down, but whatever. I, I guess your uh, your head does survive for a little bit after you get decapitated, so maybe they did know what it was, but I can't imagine it was the cleanest cut. So. No, that's a rough cut. The storm also knocked out the bridges that connected Galveston to the mainland, making it impossible to evacuate any more people and the entire city was practically flattened by the storm. So as a result of the storm, uh, most estimates are between 6,000 and 8,000 people in the actual city died. However, for the entire island, most estimates are around 10,000 to 12,000. And that's just in Galveston, like the, the yes. island of Galveston. And this, because this killed more people as it made its way inland, too. It made it all the way to Canada, so... The Canadians were like, oh, look at this little snow. I wonder what that's all about. <laughs> uh, and just to compare again to Hurricane Katrina, which is honestly the most deadliest storm that we always bring up, uh, Katrina claimed the lives of roughly 1,500 people. So a little bit more in this particular hurricane. And as we said, it's just because our measures for predicting and getting a plan together to like evacuate people is so much more cohesive now than it was mm-hmm. back then and we just did didn't ignore warnings from uh, like the people that are supposed to be telling us when storms come so <laughs> <laughs> that newsman is always wrong <laughs> can't believe that guy but the estimates of property damage uh for this 1900 uh hurricane is a little difficult to actually determine by the current standards uh but some estimates haven't ranged uh between $20 million and $30 million, which equates to 2,636 houses being destroyed and 300 feet of shoreline basically eroded. So just gone. Yep. Absolutely gone. And the 16 ships that were anchored in the harbor at the time also suffered extensive damage or were completely sunk. Yeah, and just going off of the death toll, there's one specific story that a lot of sources will mention because it's pretty tragic. Uh, so this specific event happened at St. Mary's Orphans Asylum. It was situated right on the shore in hopes that the fresh breezes from the sea would keep the children more healthy from things like yellow fever and other illnesses that were going around at the time. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, no. So that oh, means no. that it was right in the storm's path. Oh, no. And when the storm hit, the nuns that were at the orphanage took all 93 children to the second floor to avoid the immediate flooding that happened. And in addition to that, the nuns tied themselves to the children to try and keep everyone together. But in the end, the building was ripped from its foundation and those inside were trapped. And out of those 93 children, three survived by clinging to a tree. 
And recovery crews told the story of how when they found one child, they pulled them from the sand and the rubble, only to find the rope leading them to another child and another child until they had discovered all of the children. And supposedly, one nun was even found with her arms still wrapped around a group of children, honoring her vow to keep them safe until the end. So that's one Gosh. of the most tragic stories from this that thing. Is it's absolutely just the most tragic story. Not a fun day. Not a fun topic. No. But very interesting regardless. Yeah, finding them one is like, oh my goodness. Another and then one, it just oh you pull God. them out and you have this line that just gets taught in your At a certain point I was like, Yeah, I'm not picking this up anymore. Yeah, someone, someone else come. So afterwards the recovery crews that I mentioned were tasked with cleaning stuff up and since Galveston had a a sizable black population they were the ones that got most of the work at the time and it was said that the stench was so bad that they had to take shifts to deal with it because they they literally just could not stand having to breathe in that smell constantly so they had to take Mm -hmm. short shifts and uh, initially, they decided, we'll just give these people sea burials and try and push them into the sea and bury them that way. But, but. <laughs> that just meant that most of these bodies floated back up on shore. And then, at that point, they decided, all right, let's just burn all of them. So they set up big burn piles for the corpses and took care of them that way. Gosh, and like the smell was already a problem. And then we're talking about burning flesh. Yeah. Burning wet flesh. So. That's fun. Nobody really expected Galveston to recover and rebuild after this, and most outsiders urged that the island be abandoned. But despite the odds, the people of Galveston willed the city back into life, and their rebuilding and reform efforts pushed them to build the city in a way that would make it less vulnerable to a storm if something like this were to happen again. They constructed a bigger seawall six miles long, and that has since been extended, They pumped in sand from the Gulf of Mexico to raise the grade of the city by almost 17 feet and raised 2,100 new buildings along with streetcar tracks and new water pipes along the entire length of the island. The city government also reinvented itself in the efforts along the way with giving more rights to the women and more public roles in how everything worked. And they they salvaged trees, shrubs, and flowers to make sure that the island still had some vegetation on it. So a lot of good stuff did happen in the aftermath of this. People really did band together to make this place still livable and still mm-hmm. a place that can be a good place to go. So Yeah, it would have been very easy just to, you know, oh, yeah. abandon it. Everyone's urging you, just leave it. But mm-hmm. they decided they wanted to keep it, so which is good on them. Yeah, like in the face of tragedy, people do get stronger, especially in like a community like this. And it is really cool to see that they truly rebuilt this entire place yeah. from the ground up. And doing that after burning bodies. Yeah, that's just after you insane. lose close to a third of your population. Yeah, so. in uh, a day. Like that's, One thing that I did want to mention at the end here before we wrap this up is there's a man named Kerry Emanuel, who's a pe- professor of atmospheric science at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He highlighted a good point in one of the articles that I read for what should be learned from events like the 1900 storm at Galveston. Emmanuel said, quote, The Galveston hurricane made people realize you can't play politics with a weather bureau. If you make it political, people will die. End quote. And I think that's kind of applicable to more things than just weather predictions. It's just nowadays, especially, everyone wants to make everything political. 
sometimes that gets in the way of just common sense and human welfare. So nowadays, we just got to remember that we're all humans. We're all here for the same purpose. We just got to spread love and take care of each other. So I think that I thought that was a, an interesting point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, very well put. Galveston currently has a population of around 50,000 people and is still a relatively popular vacation spot. And a lot of cruise ships choose to dock here and hang out. So it's doing pretty well for itself after its rebuilding efforts. So absolutely love to see it. Happier ending than a lot of the other places that we talked about. So what a comeback. Absolutely huge comeback. Everybody loves a comeback. <clears throat> absolutely. But those are our natural disaster stories that we have for you for today. And in conclusion, Mother Nature, she will get you. Yeah, and just don't even think about the fact that the sun could just one day knock out everything on the earth and then we'd be left in another dark age and we'd probably all die. But yeah, just don't let that be an existential threat to your mind that you think about all the time like I do. Definitely don't think about solar flares. It's not going to happen. Not during our lifetime, no way. (laughs) Cody, thank you for joining us. Yeah, no, no problem. Had a blast. Always awesome being here with you guys. Love the podcast. Certified best weatherman on think, this episode. Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, definitely. Um, one of my favorite things about the podcast is the beginning. The theme is spot on. I love it. It makes me It makes me think I'm a pirate. I don't know why. I immediately think I'm sailing the blue sea. Immediately. The sailing the salty seas of podcasting. Look at that. <laughs> Look at us. Throwback. We're conveying our theme to our uh, key audience. Look at that. Absolutely. Austin, thank you for joining us in the peanut gallery over there. You want you want to say hi? You can come up to the mic and say hello. All right, and that's enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's enough. Hi. <laughs> He's shy right now. Yeah. He, had, he had a big day. Evan, where can uh, people find some photos and stuff about what we just talked about today? You can find us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco. And myself at Whatevskis. And then you can find us on Instagram at gems underscore of underscore history underscore podcast. And finally, you can find us on the clock app, aka TikTok, at gems of history pod. Cody, I believe your Twitter handle is C uh, underscore Mar 54. That still is it. All right. So if you want to follow Cody, you can find him there. And then, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, go join the Facebook group. It's yes. a lot of fun. We're trying to get more people in there, get more people interacting. Posting, good discussions in there. Good discussions. Get some conversations going. I'm posting flashback Friday stuff for historic moments that happened on every Friday uh, that date. So yeah, we got some cool stuff going on in there. And plus, as I mentioned, this is a suggested topic in the group, so you guys can maybe get something that you suggest on the podcast. So a lot of cool stuff that's going on in there. But yeah, come join us. It's a lot of fun. Come on in. Water's fine. And. As this water is so fine that we're going to leave you in this water and we're going to leave. So, water, water, water. Water, 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 water. <laughs> Nature, <laughs> weather, bye. <laughs> moist, moist. <laughs> See you guys later.